Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Truth is easier to receive if it's spoken by your friend. Even hard truth. When it's coming to you in the hand of an ally, you can take it, even if you have to do it with a grimace, there's still gratitude. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. It's one of the reasons that we as your leaders, elders, um, we don't hide in the baptismal and then come and teach you and then return. We're in your lives. We want you to know that we're your friends as well as your spiritual leaders. Because it's easier to receive truth from us if you know that we genuinely care about you. But for all of us, what do we do when truth comes to us from an enemy? Our first feeling, and naturally enough, is always to dismiss that truth simply because it came from an enemy. That's why we don't like it. We share that same human prejudice that Nathaniel expressed when Philip told him that the Messiah was born in Nazareth. And Nathaniel said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel had not made any logical inquiry into whether this was the Messiah or not. The only thing he thinks is, Nazareth, that's some backwater, unimportant location. I don't, he doesn't think friendly toward, even though it's in his own home country. And that's enough. The origin of the Messiah, so-claimed Messiah, is enough for Nathaniel to say, I want nothing to do with him. Because no good thing can come out of there. <laughs> a very good thing came out of Nazareth, didn't it? Nathaniel was very wrong. A clear example comes from that very good thing that came out of Nazareth, the Nazarene Jesus Christ, when he told the tale of the Good Samaritan. And you know the story that a Jewish man was injured and two Jewish men came near, saw the injured Jewish man and refused to help him. But a third man came and he was a Samaritan, hated of the Jews, that half-breed society to the north. The Samaritan helped the Jewish man and Jesus concluded with the question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? That was supposed to be a very uncomfortable question and I'm sure that it was. And the lawyer he was speaking to perhaps unwillingly had to admit the one who helped him. Notice he doesn't even say the Samaritan. Oh, almost can't say that dirty word. But it's the one who helped him. Jesus meant for that to be surprising. Why? Because you wouldn't expect a good thing to come out of Samaria. Truly, they did have a false worldview, a false religion, a distortion of true Judaism. And yet in this case, the Samaritan did the right thing. We Christians, we love virtue and truth, but like everyone else, look, we prefer it when it comes from our side, when it comes from our team. That makes sense. And there is a sense in which as Christians, we should be more open and trusting toward what other Christians say. 
Because we believe that someone who's truly a believer has been regenerated inwardly and they're going to say more true things than someone who's not a believer. So keep doing that. That's fine. The problem is that on occasion, unbelievers will say true things. And as we're seeing in Jonah, on occasion, genuine believers or those who claim to be will do the bad things. The allegiance can't just be to the team, to my people. It has to be to the truth itself. Even here, we have to be careful because we can, as children of God, slip back into attitudes of the sons of this age. We can come to love our team more than we come to love the truth itself. What do we love more? The truth or the fact that someone on our team said the truth? So here's an example. If you can read a news headline, which is one line of text, maybe two, large font, it gives you zero detail, nothing. If you can read that headline and before you read another word, you already know exactly what you think about that event. That's a problem. So, this applies in both directions. By the way, this is not some political thing I'm trying to say here. If you find a headline where, let's say, someone who is white exercised violence against someone who is black, if you can read that headline and before you've read another word, you already know it's racism. Or, read that headline and before you've read another word, you already know it's not racism. What do you love more? What it really was? Or your team? We are Christians. We are people of the truth. You live in a country that's complicated enough that it could have been or could not have been. Don't let that bias you. What is the reality? What is the truth? Do you love the truth more than just who happened to say it or not say it? As Christians, we have to love the truth itself. Buy truth, says Scripture, and do not sell it. Don't even sell it for political wins. You can't. You buy it and you don't let it go. Even if it's useful to let it go, you don't do that. The reality matters. The facts matter. The truth matters. I say this because today in Jonah, we're going to see this very lesson, that the truth matters more than the tribe, if you will. Because if we were mainly interested in who's on our team and what are they saying here, well, look, we've got Jonah. He's a prophet of the Lord God Most High. Jonah's on our team. We are the people of God. Jonah is, at least self-proclaimedly so, a member of the people of God. And more than that, though it is under the Old Covenant, he is a very spokesperson for God's people and for God. He's as much on our team as can be. There's a book of the Bible with his name. If you're committed to your people here, well, are you going to do what Jonah does? Jonah doesn't act in accordance with the truth. You know who acts in accordance with the truth in our passage today? The other team. 
the pagans, the Phoenician sailors, and the Ninevites will do just the same. It's the people who are not the people of God. They're not. Jonah's the people of God. They're not the people of God. We expect Jonah to do good. He's on our team. They're going to do bad because they're not. And it's exactly the opposite here. We are committed to the truth. Usually, as Christians, the truth will be on our team as Christians. <laughs> right? Praise God. We have Scripture and the Spirit of God. And sometimes we're not consistent. And sometimes that doesn't happen. You have to love the truth no matter what. Whether Jonah loves it or not, we have to love it. What does the other team get right in this text today as we come to the end of the storm? They really get two things right, but they're the two most important things. That's why it's embarrassing for us, okay? The two most important things in the book of Jonah. Pity and piety, to use an alliteration. Or you can think of it as compassion toward human life. That will be the point of the book of Jonah when we get to the very end in chapter 4. And genuinely fearing a God who's compassionate toward human life. Now, Jonah does neither. So, again, don't be Jonah. But just as embarrassing as Jonah doing neither is the fact that these pagans do both. And they do it in our text today. They show pity, it seems. They show piety, certainly, toward the true God they literally just met that day. It's an embarrassing thing. But it's in your Bible and not accidentally. So let's give attention to this text at the end of the storm. See this. It should have been shocking to the original hearers who were Hebrews just like Jonah. And it should be shocking to us because he's on our team here. But let's see what happens. Jonah chapter 1 beginning in verse 11. Then they said to him, this is the crew of pagans, saying to Jonah, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, these pagan men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they, not Jonah, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Our text has... Two parallel parts here, one scene, then another. The first is verses 11 to 13. What happens there is the sailors ask a question, and then they act. They ask, 
they act. When you get to verses 14 to 16, they ask and they act. So those are the two parts and we'll consider it in that way. It's helpful for us because that first scene, 11 to 13, emphasizes, it seems to me, their pity toward Jonah as they try to save his life. While the second really emphasizes their piety toward God as they pray to him and offer him sacrifices. So that's how we're going to consider this text this morning. We are learning from the other team. We are learning from the pagans. Don't be Jonah today and you never think you would have to say this to anyone. Be like the pagans. But that's the point of this text. They pity and have piety. So let's consider those two things, beginning with the first scene in our text, 11 through 13, where we see something of their pity toward a man who does not pity them. So look here, starting again in 11. Then they said to Jonah, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet, quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. By the way, that's Jonah's fault, remember? And he says to them, pick me up. And hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know, at least he admits it, it's because of me that you're almost dead. That this great tempest has come upon you. But look at this. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land. But they couldn't. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. So they asked and they act. They ask Jonah, what do we do? The lot's pointing at you. You've told us you're guilty. What do we do to you? And then they act, actually contrary to what he recommends for his sake. Ask and act. The question that they pose here is natural enough. Now, the lot has pointed to Jonah as the problem. He's admitted to them that he's a prophet of Yahweh, the God of heaven, who created the sea and dry land, and he's running away from him. That's why there's a storm. They know that now. And if they were more of the vindictive sort, he'd already be over the end of the boat. <laughs> what are you doing? Over the edge. You've literally put all of our lives at risk so that you can disobey your deity. We're pagans and we know that's wrong. That's what they'd be saying. So you would expect they're not so friendly toward Jonah. Jonah has almost killed them by a silly act of his own. It's his problem. It's not their problem. They've done no wrong. It's his problem. They've been doing the right thing the whole time. They're ne nearly dead. Verse 4 said the boat was considering breaking up. And now we've had two times, multiple times we're having here, the sea was more and more tempestuous. So if it had almost broken up in verse 4, imagine the state of the craft now. They are on the verge of drowning. Not a pleasant way to die either. And it's because of this man. And Jonah will literally tell them here in our text, here's what you do. Pick me up. And throw me out into that stormy sea and it will stop. Meaning you will save your life. Put yourself there on that deck and you hear that from Jonah who doesn't give two cents about your life, obviously. He's sleeping as the storm started and you're trying to save him by throwing cargo over the edge. Finally, the lot has to press him to at least admit, yep, it is my fault. And he says, pick me up and throw me. You might do it with a little pleasure. <laughs> the amazing thing is that these 
pagans, mind you, try to dig their way through the sea. That's the Hebrew word there. They're trying to dig their way desperately through the sea to get to dry land, to save Jonah's life. That's why they're doing it. Why are they rowing hard to get back to dry land? It's to save Jonah's life. Jonah doesn't care about their lives, clearly. He's put them at risk. He didn't come clean even at the beginning. They, and there are multiple reasons for this we'll get to, they care about Jonah's life. So much so that with the boat nearly breaking to bits, they're going to drown. They risk waiting and trying to row back to shore to save his life. The pagan saving the prophet. It really shouldn't be this way. They were shocked and had confronted Jonah. In verse 10, you remember they said when he revealed this, I'm running from God, and they said, what is this that you've done? So they are upset with him, but it's not a vindictiveness, clearly, that now they have their chance to get back at him and they simply don't do it. More than that, just think of the humility of these pagan sailors. Because what is it they say to Jonah? What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? They're like children looking to their father, this Yahwistic prophet, saying, okay, tell us the next step. What do we do? Only he's very unfatherly as a father. He doesn't care for the lives of these children. But they have the humility that even after they realize how callous and heartless he's been and the disobedience that he's perpetrated, they're still coming under and asking him. Because they realize we just maybe found out about Yahweh today or are just beginning to learn about him. You're a prophet. Like you've known him for a long time. So you tell us, now what do we do? I mean, even that's a remarkable level of humility in the pagans. You and I, especially you men, you know this is true, and I'm sorry to blow our cover here, but it is true that about half the time when we make a decision very confidently, probably half the time, we don't know if it's right. <laughs> we have to lead, okay? So you've got to cut us some slack here. But, so with confidence, we make our decisions, and it's not always the right decision. And we don't like to admit that. We tend to bluff. We don't know the directions. We don't want to ask for the directions because we're strong leaders. So we know what to do. Don't question that. We know. And uh, wives or others in our lives kindly say, are you sure? Sure that shirt with those pants. I'm not sure. <laughs> so we don't like, look, we're Christians. We don't like to admit we're wrong or we don't know what to do. But look at these pagans. They're sailors. They're masters of the sea. And this is just some land-loving prophet. And they are asking him, we don't know what to do. What do we do to you? They're humble like children. In other words, these sailors are more interested in getting to the life-saving truth than they are in us versus you, the bad prophet. They're not Israelites, but they're desperate. They are desperate to know really the truth in this situation. What do we do? How do we get the sea to stop raging? Either we get the truth of what we do, 
or we die. Those are our options. We can't sail back to shore. So they are telling Jonah, look, even though you are bad, you haven't cared about our lives. You are not one of our people. You are a foreigner on this ship. Even though you wouldn't even admit you are wrong until the lot forced you to, regardless everything that would make us bitter toward you, we need you to teach us. What do we do? And they are willing to listen. May God grant us to be like pagans, <laughs> to treat the truth like that, to see it as death or life. I mean, you see in our text, it says the reason they were asking him this is for, because the sea grew more and more tempestuous. They either get it right or they die. Now Jonah answers them plainly. How he knew exactly that throwing him into the water would stop the storm, I don't know. He was a prophet. Perhaps God had revealed it. Or maybe he just made that reasonable deduction. He says, I'm the reason this is a problem. So throw me overboard and the sea will stop. Either way, he tells them, pick me up. It's for dramatic effect, he's adding verbs here. He could just say, throw me. Of course, you have to pick him up. But he's trying to emphasize this. Pick me up. Hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Notice that this is the end of Jonah's contribution to our text. <laughs> he does know what to do. He knows the truth. He's just not been living it, as you've seen. But for the rest of our text, this pivotal moment in Jonah, Jonah's just the passive object. Now we turn back to the pagans. That's who this text is about. Look again at the pagans. They could save their lives very easily. Throw me overboard and you're saved. Easy to do. And yet they are rowing back to shore to save a man who has put their lives in jeopardy. I mean, for a good man, someone might even die. But for Jonah, these are very virtuous pagans. Now, you might be thinking, hopefully, and you're right about this, that there's no explicit mention that they really pitied Jonah, and that's true. It's possible because in our next scene we'll see what motivates them is piety. They fear God. They don't want innocent blood on them. So it could be that even here they don't really pity Jonah. It's more just if they throw him overboard and they got this wrong somehow, then the deity causing the storm will be more angry because now they have innocent blood upon them. That could be all of their motivation. I admit that's possible. It doesn't say that. It doesn't not say that here. But it does appear as you're looking at these pagans, and just as we've come to almost get to know them in these few weeks as we're looking at them, it would not be a shocking thing if on top of that motivation was a genuine pity for the prophet Jonah. They don't want to kill someone. They don't want him to die. Jonah soon will be sitting on a hilltop outside of Nineveh pleading with God to kill 120,000 pagans. But these pagans, they've got one prophet, one Israelite, one Hebrew on board and they risk their lives because they don't want to kill him. In fact, this is going to be one of the major lessons, like I said, of the book of Jonah. When we get to the very end, of course, Jonah, as he sat on that hilltop, you'll see a plant 
for shade grew over his head and then very soon God sent a bug and it died. And Jonah was furious to lose the plant that grew and God uses that to teach him this. These are the last two verses of the book of Jonah and will be its core message. God says to Jonah, you pity. Jonah does pity. Give him that. But what does he pity? Not the Ninevites, not the sailors. You pity the plant <laughs> for which you didn't labor, nor did you make it grow. It came into being in a night. It perished in a night. And God says, should I not pity the pagans of Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left. They don't know Yahweh from any of the other gods. And also much cattle. God pities people. Even sinful people. He has compassion. And one of the major lessons of Jonah is, therefore, so should we. And Jonah doesn't. Jonah doesn't. But the pagans do in our text. Now many of you are aware that we've been through quite a storm as a local church. And our focus is always on the preaching of the word of God. It was before the storm of last year. It is now. May God grant it shall be forever. But of course we're having to navigate all of the fallout of the things we've all experienced. And I have conversations with you and you with me and you know. You are still navigating, for many of you, those waters of a church split. Both what do you think about it? How do you interact with people? Are, you in the, are we in the right? Are we in the wrong? Those are all questions I'm sure come to your mind at time for most of you. You know that at the center of this conflict was ethnicity and race. The same things being debated in the culture. Just coming into the church and we debate those things as well, which is important. And at time to time, we'll make comments about that even from the pulpit because we're responsible for your souls. We have to give an account, leadership here, including myself. I have to stand before Christ and give an account for you. And that's a heavy burden for us. We feel that weight. For that reason, we are trying to do two things. And this text is an excellent example of that. On the one hand... You know that there is a truth. There's not a bunch of truths. There's a truth, and it's revealed here. Even in our text, there's Jonah. He's not doing the right thing, but he has the truth. And they don't, the pagans. They are worshiping false gods, the world, and he's worshiping Yahweh. He's got a lot of ethical problems, obviously, Jonah does. But we still can't say, well, if the pagans are doing a good job, then their gods are as good as Yahweh. No, no. No. Part of what we do as pastors for you, and we've done this in multiple ways, is we're trying to protect you in this season in which, in a unique way even, ideas that originate outside the church in the world are trying really hard, really hard, to come into the church in all kinds of Trojan horses, in all kinds of ways, these ideologies. And this would be things like, you're aware, Marxism. And all the discussions about critical race theory. There are ideologies that want to come in and turn you away from Christ. Make you think differently about God, man, yourself, the church. All on the basis of power structures, okay? So we as elders, man, since August of last year, 
I can't count for you how many books I've read, how many things we've, mostly we've been doing reading. We try to stay away from the short stuff because it gets confusing. Mostly reading books, looking at scripture, praying, thinking, conversations, protecting, shepherding, guarding against error, helping you to keep focused on Christ, theology, gospel, truth, Yahweh, the God of Jonah, the true God. Don't go anywhere else. Stay there. That's why we just keep, you've noticed, preaching through Scripture. Even the choice of Jonah as a book, you know, maybe it's crossed your mind. Ah, oh, I see why he picked that. Oh, no, you're wrong. <laughs> I picked this a year ago. This has nothing to do with our circumstances, just other than God's divine appointment, I think, of us going through this. So, on the one hand, it's important for you to know truth matters. You can't live your life without truth. You can't go after the gods of the pagans and be just as fine as if you were worshiping Yahweh. So this matters deeply. At the same time, look, it would not be fair of me not to make some application as we watch Jonah who has the true God and the truth. He's not fully living up to that truth. It's maybe a soft way to put it. Why? Because, and this is the main point of Jonah, he doesn't care. He does not care about the lost people. He doesn't like them. He's got his team, Israel, and then there's the other team, the bad people. And he wants them consumed with fire from heaven. That's wrong. That's absolutely wrong. The fight against doctrinal error is only one half of the battle. The other half is in some ways is harder and it comes to the level of the heart. With so much error in the world, you know this, you watch the news, it's hard to keep your heart soft toward other people, especially unbelievers and especially those you most disagree with. Keep disagreeing with them by the way, okay? But you know it's hard to keep your heart soft. You see radical things that take place, things that make no sense. And it's easy for your heart to begin to harden slowly over time, where you no longer think of these people, these enemies, these Ninevites, these pagans, as people who need to repent of their sin and be saved. You think of them as political opponents, as the people destroying schools, as the people who are the enemies you need to overcome, whatever it takes. These are enemies, it's true, just like the Ninevites. They're not enemies Jonah had to go and conquer, they're enemies Jonah had to go and preach, repent, so that you can be saved. Jonah's problem wasn't that he didn't have truth. His problem was his heart had hardened. I don't know how that happened. Maybe Ninevites had come and killed friends of his. I don't know. But his heart had hardened and he doesn't care about pagans. And so God is dealing with him to soften his heart. I don't know if he ever did. We don't know if that happened with Jonah or not. Think of this in our own circumstance when it comes to things like ethnicity and race. You know that there are ideas out there right now that are novel and odd. And we should speak against and vote against those which will be harmful to society. Yes. And while we do that, you cannot let your heart harden 
toward your enemies or even toward some of the issues that they are most excited about. Albeit they handle it completely wrong. But take just the issues of minorities. Do minorities face unique challenges? Yes. That's true of any minority in any country in the world of all time. Do minorities seek, face unique challenges? Yes. Can you acknowledge that's true? Yes, you can. Is it right to do that? Yes, it is. So you can love your neighbor. Can you acknowledge that and at the same time stay faithful to Yahweh? You have to. I mean, what are your alternatives? To not care? That's not an alternative. That's not an option for a Christian. We may, at times, and I get this, okay? I feel this with you. At times we feel you can't care about unique challenges a minority faces, or if you do, you're a Democrat. That's what the Democrats care about. We can't care about that. Listen, I don't care if Democrats care about that. I don't care if pagans care about I don't care if that's for the Nineveh. I don't care if it's the sailors here. You and I know if there is another person facing genuine problems, not, not if they're imagined, but if there's a genuine issue someone is facing, you have to keep your heart soft. You can't let politics harden it. You can't. When Jesus came to earth, you remember that there were all kinds of political things happening in his day, and that included the tax collectors and the prostitutes, and they were ruining society. You know what Jesus did? He went to their house. He ate with them. He loved them. He shared the gospel with them. He told them they were going to hell if they didn't repent. And they wanted to be with him. And eventually he dies partly for that, among other things. The enemy will try, it's true, to use your compassion. If you feel a compassion towards someone suffering, in this case with minorities, you feel that compassion, you know the enemy will try to use that to lead you away from truth into ideologies. That's true. I'm not denying that whatsoever. But listen, what's your alternative? To stop caring? To not care? Is that an option for a believer? To not care if someone's suffering. You know that's not an option. We have to continue caring while holding fast to what is true in an uncompromising way. Is that hard to do? You bet that's hard to do. It's the Christian way. You love your enemy? I didn't say that. Jesus said that. Do good to those who persecute you. You don't have a choice in the matter. If you come to love your team colors more than your neighbor, you know, and here we are in a country where we have two dominant political parties. It's just the way the system works, okay? Good or bad, okay, you can argue that. It's just how it works. Two political parties, adversarial system working here. And what Satan wants to do is to align you so closely with one of these parties and how they think that when you read headlines, you already know what's true. But we are Christians. We care more about the truth than who's saying it at any given time. That's what we love. That's what we care about. Christ, His truth, reality. And we have to do that. Listen, please, don't be Jonah. Don't be Jonah. Worship Yahweh, who Jonah worships. And keep your heart soft toward your... I know that's hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for you. Keep your heart soft 
and your doctrine rock hard. May God grant that. In this case, be like the pagans. They at least valued Jonah's life. And they didn't really have any reason to. But they did. Now they pitied him. So there's that first alliterating P. <laughs> they pitied him. And they also had piety. And that did make them stand apart. And we see that as we move now into the second scene. They've tried to save his life. Baffles the mind. But it's, they're pitying his life. Now look, they have a piety toward God. Look at verses 14 to 16. Again, they ask and they act. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. That's what they asked. Here's how they act. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They ask God not to hold this man's blood against them. And they act by doing what he said. Pick him up. Throw him out. And then beyond that, they worship God in sacrifice. Now you and I may be a bit surprised that they refer to innocent blood I don't know that Jonah's blood is innocent. He's guilty. He's done wrong. And yet that's how they referred to it. Don't let this man's innocent blood come upon us. And why is that? I think again, it's because they fear God. They're thinking, maybe we're wrong here. And if we're wrong, oh God, and this man's not really guilty and worthy of us killing him right now, please don't hold this against us. It shows almost an excessive fear of God. Even though they are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, they are strangers to the covenants of promise, they have no hope and are without God in the world, and even they, the pagans, do this right thing, they are coming in one day to fear God and to fear Him exceedingly. You can see their piety too in the remarkable confession at the end of their prayer. Why should God not hold their sin against them? Well, because you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. In other words, you are a sovereign God. Look, they were maybe introduced to Yahweh that day. Perhaps they'd heard of him. It's like that day, a few hours before, and they've already come to embrace God's sovereignty. <laughs> Which, you know, that's more than for most of us. Most of us come kicking and screaming to the sovereignty of God, and they've embraced it in the space of a few hours looking at a stormy sea and saying, God, this is your doing. You did just as it pleased you. So please don't hold this blood against us. We're just trying to go along with what appears to be your will here. They've literally, as pagans, become like the psalmists of Israel. They could easily have said something like Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens, the God of heaven. He does all that he pleases. Or again, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. That's Israel. These pagans seem to believe that very thing. And just think how many Christians today have a very hard time embracing the sovereignty of God. And they try to limit it in various ways, maybe to preserve human freedom or to get God off the hook and say things like, God is sovereign, but he can't touch a person's will. If God reaches his hand to touch a person, are you going to slap it and say you can't do that? 
look, I know they're talking about the storm. You've done what you pleased here. But I don't doubt they could say the same things as Solomon said. You do all that you please, even over human wills. They confess the sovereignty of God. These are pious men. And verse 16 concludes, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and made vows. Maybe they offered animals on the boat. If there are any they hadn't thrown over the edge of the boat, then they could sacrifice those. Maybe this was when they got to land. And then they make vows, which is where you promise, I'll make sacrifices to you later. So this isn't just of a moment. This is, at least for some time, we're fearing Yahweh. Probably they're not monotheists. They've probably just added Yahweh to the rest of their gods. And yet, they're still presented here as, in some ways, virtuous, as pious. They're worshiping in the ancient manner with a sacrifice and with a vow. And you may think, how can God in any way accept these pagans' offering. They hardly know him. They haven't been through a catechism. They've not been to our newcomers' class. How do you worship God if you've not been to our newcomers' class? They've not been to our newcomers' class. They've not read good Christian books. These men are the thief on the cross. They have just now learned of God in truth, and they repent, as Nineveh will do. They've not been to a synagogue. They've not been to a church. They've not heard a sermon unless Jonah's very brief words count as a sermon. But they are the tax collectors and the prostitutes. They are pagans. They are the least likely to worship God. And here they are worshiping God. And I think we can assume that although their ideas of God are quite imperfect, God is receiving this worship. If you feel yourself to be an ignorant pagan, <laughs> sometimes we do. If that's what you feel like your life is, there's not any reason you shouldn't be accepted by this Yahweh. You see his compassion in the book of Jonah? That's a compassion he feels toward the pagans, toward Jonah, toward the Ninevites, and toward you. I know that Jonah doesn't pity people's lives. But the point of the book of Jonah is that God's not like Jonah. God pities your life. So much that he's given Christ as the greater Jonah, in a sense, thrown him overboard into the sea of his wrath to calm the storm of his wrath. And if you believe in Christ, you place your faith there. No matter how imperfect your ideas are now, no matter how little your faith is, if it's the size of a mustard seed and directed toward the true God, Yahweh, through his son, Jesus Christ, then the storm will calm for you too. And God's wrath will end toward you and you'll be accepted. If it happened for the pagans, it can happen for you. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you that you have given us your whole counsel, all things pertaining to life and godliness are not found in worldly ideologies. We don't have to become scholars to know what you require of us. Isn't it this? To love justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with you. We don't have to master every issue. We have to be faithful to the most essential issues here in your word. And strive humbly like children to come under your word in even the 
secondary areas of life and say, God, teach us. Teach us how you want to live our lives now. We're just a blip on the radar. We are here for a moment. We are but a breath. But we want to live this one breath, exhaling a word of praise to you. And I pray that's what our lives would be. That as our Savior is, was, and evermore will be, both grace and truth, that you would grant that for us. Not to waver in truth while extending grace to the most sinful and vile. Because such were we, but we were washed. Lord, send us as nurses, you the great physician, the doctor of come for the sick and not for the healthy. Lord, give us that soft heart toward the sick, to tell them they're sick, and to love them and administer the cure of the gospel, that they might be saved. For the sake of your great name, grant us not to be Jonah 